I just I feel like the, the Apostle Paul wanted to speak to the Macedonian Christians, to those in Philippi in particular. Your faith is spoken of all over the world. It may seem like just a small thing that you're doing uh, when you're leading a victory group or part of a victory group, but it's not a small thing. It is not a small thing. The power of that repeated discipleship activity is sending missionaries all over the world. We are reaching every nation, but it wouldn't happen without people leading groups of four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve people. That be, that's the building block of the church of God. So I just wanted to honor you and your leadership first. And then I want to help you know me just a little bit better. So the only way to know me as well is to know the best part of my life, which is my family. So I think we have a picture of my family there. Uh, that's my wife, to, just to the right. You might not know which one's my daughter's and which one's my wife. But that, that's her. She is the joy of my heart. She's my best friend. Wherever she is, I'm home. So if she was here, I would be home, but she's not. Uh, 42 hours of travel to get here. It was a fun, fun deal. I got here late last night, got into the hotel at midnight. But that's her. Uh, we, as soon as I got into the hotel room, we were on FaceTime. First thing. Uh, and hers. I love her to death. My oldest daughter to the right, Ella, she's studying for, for intercultural ministries, cross-cultural ministries, plans to live overseas. She is uh, pretty conversant in Spanish, I think, Pastor Philip, would you say? She's, uh, she's led several people to the Lord in Spanish. She, she led her janitors to the Lord in her high school and was on a high school lunch was discipling them through the purple book in Spanish. Uh, at her high school, while everybody else was worried about being in the cliques and the clubs, she was trying to lead people to Jesus. I couldn't be prouder of her. She just amazes me. Um, then my, my second daughter, Zoe, she helps me with lots of things. Actually, she helps even run my schedule. So believe it or not, she helps me be where I'm supposed to be, when I'm supposed to be there. And she just now turned 17, and she's already more organized than her 40-something dad. But that's fantastic. Uh, my son, Dawson, is a basketball nut right now. Do you love basketball? Can we get a cheer for basketball today in the Philippines? I hope, you, I, I hope you're enjoying that wonderful series that's going on. A lot of back-and-forth action is fun. Dawson. Uh, basketball, baseball, etc. Um, he, he led his best friend to the Christ just a few weeks ago, and we're meeting uh, at a little fast food restaurant every week for, for his best friend and one other friend to go through the Purple Book with us. So uh, they're just, I'm, I couldn't be more proud of my family. I delight in them. So if you want to know me, there, that's how you know me. If you wanted to love me, one of the best ways to love me would be to love them. I'd actually rather have them receive love than get love to myself. You know that if you're a parent, that when love comes to your children, it warms your heart even more than if love came to you. Do you have you felt that? Those of you in the room have kids? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. And wouldn't the reverse be true? If you wanted to hurt me, hurt them. And it would hurt me more than any pain that would ever come to me. Uh, I would jump in front of pain to keep them from experiencing pain. If you hurt me, I could forgive you actually pretty quickly. But if you hurt them, I need God's help to forgive you. Do you know what I mean? Which is part of why it is difficult for us to think about what we're going to talk about today. Because we're going to talk about today someone who has hurt people and uh, that really hurt people significantly 
and many times. And I think we should actually pay attention to the fact that when we hurt other people, we're actually hurting someone's child. When we do wrong to someone, we're actually doing wrong to someone's son, someone's daughter, and they love that person more than their own life. And when someone through their life harms multiple sons and daughters and does it again and again, we might call them a menace. So let me, let me just say, some people really are menaces in the world. If you know what that word means, to be a menace, a terror, a force of evil. They've done harm to child after child after child after child. And if we don't think about that clearly, we won't understand just how difficult today's passage is. Some people truly are menaces to the world. So, and if we think about the way they have menaced the world, we'll understand eternal judgment better will understand the judgment of God better. Because when a menace has affected thousands of people with harm, it starts to make sense. Let's do some math for a second on Hitler. Familiar with Hitler? And by the way, my people back home, they talk to me. So you can feel free to talk to me or shake your head. Anything you want to say, you can say. I mean, they, they, they get kind of loud, don't they, Pastor Philip? Like, you know, sometimes I'm like, that point wasn't that good. You're just being happy being loud. But... Um, <laughs> So that doesn't bother me one bit if you do. Uh, let's just do some, some math on Hitler. Can you put that, the numbers there up there? I won't be able to do it with my jet lag brain. Okay, so uh, from what we understand, Hitler uh, led the murder of at least six million Jews. Six million. So these are grandparents, parents, and children. And every single one of them was somebody's child. Six million. That's not counting all of those who were starved, beaten, tortured, but survived. Six million that we can actually count that died. That doesn't count all of those that we couldn't track. It was such a massive effort and so many remains were destroyed. That's an estimate. But six million, estimate another five million were prisoners of war that were tortured, starved, beaten, and killed. So that's about 11 million people. If each of those only had one other person in the world that loved them the way I love my kids and my wife, Let's just say they don't have more than one. Let's just say they only had one. Now we double it. That's 11 million plus 11 million. You following so far? Uh-huh. Yeah. And then anybody who's, you know, anybody who's suffered that way, if they were killed, they had life left to live. If someone they loved killed, they lived the rest of their life with that pain. You follow? There's no way that pain goes away. Several dear friends of mine have lost their children to some kind of tragic incident, and it never goes away. I have points marked on my calendar to touch base with them and say, this was his birthday. This was the day, he, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Go through those days and send them a text, send them a note, because I know that for the, for the rest of their life, grief will hit them on those days. So let's say on average, the, these that were suffering under Hitler had to live 30 more years. They could have lived 30 more years, or the people who lost them lived another 30 years suffering in that grief and loss. If you multiply that 22 million times 30 years, that's 660 million years of pain. That is a menace to the world. Are you following? It is a menace to society. 
Now, when you think about that math, if Hitler only has to spend one year with weeping and gnashing of teeth, for every year in this life he, he dealt out weeping and gnashing of teeth, then he would have to spend 660 million years in weeping and gnashing of teeth just to even out to our lowest possible estimate of the suffering he caused. Are you following? That means that eternal judgment, because eternity doesn't mean infinity. In other words, it doesn't last forever. It's just ages upon ages. God is the alpha, the beginning, and the omega, the end. He will be here once we're gone. We don't fully understand what that means. We don't understand it. But 660 million years is something like eternity. And when we contemplate people who have been a menace to the world, eternal judgment begins to make more sense. Why do I share all of that? Because I want to read the book of Acts, chapter 9, to you. Acts, chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. You can open your Bibles or turn them on. Um, Acts comes right before the book of Romans. It's after the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you're just paging through it and you're new to the Bible, that will help you find it about three-fourths, two-thirds of the way through your Bible. Acts chapter 9, I just want to read two verses, and I want you to remember what we said about being a menace. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, there's more to read in that passage but I want to stop there for a moment because we normally read right past it. And when we think of Saul of Tarsus, we think, yeah, the Apostle Paul, he used to be Saul, but now he's Paul. And he was, there was no greater proliferator of the church, no greater builder of the church, no greater theologian of the church, no greater self-sacrificer for the church, no greater suffering servant of Jesus Christ in his day than Paul of Tarsus. Praise God for Paul of Tarsus. We love Paul of Tarsus. Oh, I wish I was like Paul of Tarsus. Can I introduce you to Saul from these two verses? Introducing Saul to you. Uh, Saul was a terror. Let me rewind just a minute. Acts 7.58 tries to set him up, and we see another scene before this one comes. Uh, Stephen, who was a martyr of the church, one of the first martyrs of the church, is beautifully portraying the gospel of God before the people. And in Acts 7.58, they stone Stephen to death, and a young Saul has all of the cloaks of the men who stoned Stephen to death thrown at his feet. In other words, he is an apprentice to a leader by the name of Gamaliel at the day, one of the greatest teachers in the Jewish church at the time, Jewish, Jewish, Jewish people. And Paul, as a, Saul at the time was his name, as a young apprentice, so to speak, gathered all of the cloaks of the men who didn't, were working up a sweat, throwing rocks at a living human being pelting him in the head, pelting him in the chest, pelting him in the legs, finding blocks, box, blocks, broken stones, wherever they can, and the jagged rocks thrown against him eventually bludgeoned him to death. And they were working at it so hard with such a fervor, this mob, that they took off their cloaks because they were working up a sweat, murdering a follower of Jesus Christ. And Paul stands there, and it says, giving approval. 
So the first thing I want to tell you to introduce Saul is Saul was approving, not just observing the terror that was being done to the church. He stood there happy as he watched a man stoned to death. Uh, then back to chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, it says that Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciple of the Lord. Now, it's an interesting phrase here. Um, some translations say breathing out threats, but actually, literally, it's more like inhaling threats in the original language. And, and it's, it's not a phrase that we have in English. You, you may have it in Tagalog, but I wouldn't know it, so I don't, can't share it with you. I know there's not a direct translation for English. This is a good translation. Still breathing threats. Doesn't say breathing out, doesn't say breathing in. What does that mean? It's like Threats and murder were the air he breathed. It's a way of saying he lived for this. In the States, the closest phrase that I know that we have is, what gets you up in the morning? We often ask people that, to talk about their purpose, to talk about their joy, to talk about what energizes them and keeps them going. If he was honest, and if this passage is true, and this is the word of God, so we believe that it's true, right? This is giving us an accurate description of Saul of Tarsus. What got him up in the morning? Killing the sons and daughters of Christians. So Saul lived to murder, but he settled for chains. Saul lived to murder, but he settled for chains. And often when we read this just briefly, and we don't pay attention to what it's saying, we, we see that he asks for letters so that he can bind them and bring them to Jerusalem. And we think, oh, that's, so they're just going to have to face trial, and maybe they got off. No, he would rather kill them. And if they resisted or if they blasphemed, he would find a way and would kill them. When you hear what is said about him later on, we realize that he was terrorizing the church. And the binding and gathering. Think about what they did to Jesus when he was bound. Did they treat him kindly? Was there a rule of law? And now we've seen it all over the world. I know you've seen it here in the Philippines. We've seen it in the States. There's plenty of times when people who have authority and have a chance to bind people take that opportunity because they love to cause harm, to cause harm unjustly to those who were bound. It was no different then. It was perhaps worse. Saul lived a murder but he settled for chains. Are you liking Saul right now? <laughs> if you are, I have a little concern about your psycho psychological well-being. Is there a counselor in the house? I don't know. Maybe, I don't know if you can fix that. Uh, so Saul was approving, not just observing. Saul lived to murder, but settled for chains. Saul volunteered. He was not assigned uh, look in the second half of verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, the way is just an old phrase for what it meant to be Christian, the way of Jesus Christ, because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and so they were called the way. If they found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. In other words... Sometimes when people do evil things and they're on trial, they say, I was just following orders. If you look at The Hague, the International Criminal Court, 
that tries to bring justice to those who are doing great evil in the world, menaces to society. Very often what happens when it finally makes it to that courtroom is everybody all the way up to the person who was absolutely in charge, who was probably already dead anyway, everybody else says, well, I was just following orders, I was just following orders, I was just following orders. Saul couldn't say that and be honest. He went to his superiors and begged for the chance to beat, imprison, and kill Christians. It was his idea. If I was actually to give the pre-Christ Saul a name, I would call him the terror from Tarsus. Because that's who he was. Saul liked killing Christians. And if you were a Christian, Saul was your Hitler. Now do you feel it? Now do you feel how difficult this passage is to come to grips with when we look at what happens next? So often we read Scripture so quickly We miss the depths and the feeling of what's beneath the words. But I hope right now you can settle into it for a second and then listen, though, to how disturbing it is to what God does then for the terror of Tarsus. What would you wish would happen to him if it was your sons and daughters beaten and murdered? Verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, rise. And enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. He was blind now. So they led him by the hand and brought him into the very place he was going, Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. When I enter into the emotion, I showed you my family. Saul killed my son Dawson. When I let myself sit there, Saul killed my son Dawson. If he had done that, my son, he led someone to Jesus. He's taking him through a purple book. He's a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, wants nothing more than for the people he loved to be with God for eternity. And because he did that, Saul kills him. And God rescues Saul? It doesn't destroy him. Nobody else receives a vision like this from Jesus. Other than the apostles, nobody gets any more clear presentation of the person of Jesus Christ than Saul, who now, because he has seen Jesus, is named an apostle, called and sent by God. 
Nobody else gets that good of a treatment from God. As a matter of fact, the people who were there that day, they don't see Jesus. They hear a voice. They're not allowed to see him. Paul gets this vision, Saul gets this vision of this glorious light and the presentation of Jesus directly to him and nobody else gets it but he's a murderer, he's a menace, he's the terror of Tarsus. Now, this book, this beautiful, wonderful book is not about us. Did you know that? It's about God. Page after page of this we see ourselves in it. No book shows us to ourselves more clearly. Nothing is more revelatory about who we are. There's no greater mirror that we can have. But that's a secondary effect. It's actually about the glory of God. It's actually about the personhood of God. It's actually about the love of God that you heard John talk about so clearly. It's actually about who God is and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is Jesus, period. And once you understand that it's about Jesus, it changes everything. So what does this teach us about God? If this is about God, it's not about Saul, it's not about me, and it's not about my family, it's not about my children. What does this teach us about God? Here's what I think it teaches us. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. Jesus goes out of his way to save the unsavable. Jesus goes literally out of his way to save the unsavable to have mercy on menaces, to show grace to people who with gore and just absolute gall spread terror to the world. That's who God is. He goes out of his way to save the unsavable. Can I show you a, a closer to our life version of this, Comrade Doik. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of this man's name uh, from the regime, the Khmer Rouge regime. Have you heard of Khmer Rouge? And all of the violence that happened, eight million people living in that country at the time, by just a few short years had passed, two million out of eight million were dead, murdered. Two million, think about that, proportionately. If we just go one, two, three, dead, 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 that's living at that time. He was one of the key leaders of this and led the most significant death camp of the regime, Conrad Doig. Killed Dawson's and Ella's and Zoe's left and right. After they were tortured, beaten in the most horrific ways, he would then give the order, and the orders were something like this. Smash them to pieces. Again and again, uh, ordered to be smashed, condemned to be smashed. Smashed was the word most often used. In other words, they weren't just killed in a merciful way. They were menaced on their way to death. Comrade Doik fled when the country was invaded, when their military lost its power. He stumbled into a very small community and tried to start finding a way to live, but his conscience began to torture him. Day and night, he saw the images of those he had beaten, abused, and murdered. Day and night, he was convicted. Day and night, he began to hate his own soul. And one day he stumbled into a very tiny Baptist church, strangely enough, in those out-of-the-way hills in a tiny rural village. 
and heard the gospel of God. This wasn't Buddhist karma where he was going to have to live lifetime after lifetime after lifetime after lifetime trying to stumble out of what he should rightly deserve by his millions of years of suffering he'd send out into the world. This was a radical grace of God. This was a Jesus who goes out of his way to save the unsavable. He gave his life to Christ and became one of the only leaders of the regime to publicly, you can go listen to the video, publicly confess his own crimes. Uh, did that mean he was perfect? No. Uh, don't, don't even come close to thinking that. This man was a terror. And God saved him. Uh, let me just see if I can find the quote that I love from him. Would you put this up on the screen? I ask your forgiveness. I know that you cannot forgive me, but I ask you to leave me the hope that you might. This is after he came to Christ when he testified not only to his own crime but pointed the finger at all of those that he had been collaborating with so that they might be convicted too. He said, I'm committed to legal justice happening for what we have done. Did he hope for mercy? Did he hope for grace? Yes. God goes out of his way to save the unsavable. Alice Cooper, do you recognize this face? The next face there. You recognize this man? Some of you might listen to Hard Rock. You might know, might not. He's getting a little bit older now. So, you know, if you recognize him, I don't know. That might just, you might have dated yourself in the room. But Alice, Alice Cooper was a rebel of rebels. He led an entire generation into drug abuse, sexual promiscuity, uh, violence at times. He glorified violence through his songs. Look at the, the makeup that he would use. He was strung out on cocaine, looked in the mirror, and he, and, and, and he realized that his face, though it didn't have makeup on it, looked like his makeup. That's how he talks about the moment when he came to Christ. Looking in the mirror, he was terrified by what he saw. He didn't want to live anymore. He said, I no longer want to live. Put that quote up from Alice Cooper. I'm tired of this life, and I know that this is right. When the Lord opens your eyes and you suddenly realize who you are, and he was terrified by it, discouraged by it, felt like, who could ever love me? And then you realize who he is. He had a radical encounter with the grace of God, says that all of my rebellion before was just fake rebellion. None of that's rebellion. That's what everybody's doing anyway. How can you call me a rebel when I'm doing all the sins the rest of the world is doing? The true rebellion is following this radical love of the Lord Jesus Christ and being willing to proclaim it everywhere you go. But if this was the idol of my son who became addicted to cocaine and died from his drug addiction because he followed this man, do you see how troubling it would be for me for him to just all of a sudden be forgiven? Until we realize that Jesus has to go out of his way. <laughs> Can we be honest for all of us? And has to go out of his way for me. If Jesus goes out of his way to save the unsavable, so should we. If Jesus goes out of his way to save the murderers, so should we. If Jesus goes out of his way to save the gangs, so should we. If Jesus goes out of his way to save the drug dealer, 
should we? No drive-by shootings from us. I don't care who says it's okay. If Jesus goes out of his way to save the person who has abused him, I should go out of my way to save the person who has harmed me. If Jesus goes out of his way to save the unsavable, forgive the unforgivable, then I can go out of my way to forgive who seems unforgivable, to save those who seem unsavable, to never give up on pursuing those who most desperately need the grace of Christ. And if I get to heaven and I find out that in the last moment of his life, Hitler said, Lord, have mercy on me before he killed himself. And for some reason, God who was compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love, decides to let him come in as one through the fire. Everything burned up, smelling as smoke, and maybe he's homeless in heaven, but he's there. (laughs) If I won't have him to dinner in my heavenly home, I haven't yet understood grace. I haven't had the grace revolution that truly helps us understand the depths of the beautiful, magnificent, radical, so ridiculous, it's offensive love of God. He doesn't love the way we love. We're trying to love the way he loves. I can't take a metaphor from human love to show you what it's like because nothing compares to Jesus Christ on the cross, the living and most holy God dying for every single one of our sins. For every terror of Tarsus, for every menace in Manila, for every evil and awful and abusive person. That's why he died. Let me just pause for a moment. I just think there's someone here today who when you come into this room, you look around and think, yeah, uh, this is probably for them. It's probably not for me. When you came into worship, you wondered if you should even be allowed to be here. I once had a person meet me at the altar. We were praying. He came up to a moment for prayer and said, I'm just surprised. Why are you surprised? I'm not dead yet. Why are you surprised you're not dead yet? I thought God would strike me dead before I got to you. And when he shared the awful things he had done, I realized why. It was just shame. We all have it. I remember a man confessing to me in church the sexual abuse that he had committed to children and then going that very day to confess it to the family and the, and the, the uh, police. And he, when he called me from prison, prison, he said, Pastor Dave, I'm finally free. This is where I belong, but God has given me grace and mercy. I have to pay the price for what I've done, but I'm so grateful that he loves me and hasn't discarded me and thrown me away. He was abused himself. If you have done something that makes you say, I don't think the mercy of God can reach me, I'm telling you that's a lie from the pit. Because the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and he doesn't want you to believe that God could have mercy on you. But he's going out of his way for you. He would chase you to the ends of the earth. Would you bow your heads with me? Close your eyes in prayer. If you would just say, Dave, as you're speaking, that's me. If I'm honest, I'm not sure God would want this person that I am 
you don't know what I've done, Dave. You can't tell me anything that wouldn't surprise me. I've been in ministry enough, long enough to hear the worst and imaginable things. But every head bowed and every eyes closed, I just want you to have a private moment with the Lord. If that's you and you say, boy, I need the mercy of God, I'm just not sure it could even come to me. Would you just, head bows, heads bowed and eyes closed. I know that was a loud moment. I'm not sure what happened there. But just keep your head bowed and your eyes closed. If that's you, would you just slip up your hand to me and say, I need the mercy of God. I'm just not sure it would come to someone like me. If you're looking up, I'm going to think it's you. If all you can do is lift your eyes up and look at me, that's fine. I'll see you. You need the mercy of God. Maybe you haven't murdered people. Maybe you haven't abused people. But you've done things that cause you great sorrow. Yes. speaking to you. You might even be fearful to even raise your hand. You say, I don't know how God could have mercy on me. He made today for you. He designed today for you. I believe he had me travel 42 hours just for you. The rest of what I'm doing here is probably just add-on and bonus and benefit. He's here for you. That's you and you were one of those who raised their hands. I just want you to encourage you in your mind. You don't have to say it out loud. God can hear our thoughts before they're formed on our lips. Would you just say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Yeah, I see some of you with hands cupped upward. That's a beautiful thing. Or hands still raised. That's fine. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I know I can't earn your forgiveness. I can't earn your grace. Would you wash me? Nobody else can make me clean. Only you can make me clean. Cover me in your blood. I want to live for you. Like Saul lived for you the rest of his life. Would you help me live for you the rest of, your, of my life? Whatever pain and sorrow I've caused, help me to multiply even greater grace and good. And Lord, I receive your forgiveness. Help me to believe it. In Jesus' name. And keeping your head bowed and your eyes closed, if you would say, Dave, uh, I'm not in that group, but I'm in a group. I've got some people that it's hard for me to forgive. It's hard for me to even believe still that they could be saved. Maybe it's a hardened person who pushed away the gospel many, many times. God's saying, don't give up. Maybe it's someone who's done some harm and it's so great that it's difficult for you to think about reaching them, but you know you have someone in your life that God is asking you to go out of your way for bring mercy of God. Would you raise your hand and say, I know who God is bringing to my mind, that I need to go out of my way to bring the mercy of God. Yeah, just raise your hand. We're going to lift our hands in prayer to God for these people. Anyone else? Yes? Ask God to bring them to mind. lifted hand is your way of saying, God, I'm listening and I'm going to do my best to go out of my way for them. Lord, we lift our hands to you for those that we are tempted to give up on, tempted to walk away from, tempted to discard, tempted to forget. Lord, don't let us forget them. Lord, don't let us give up on them. If you went out of your way for us, you, you want us to go out of our way for others. Break our hearts for them. 
break our hearts for them. And Lord, we pray right now on their behalf that you would take away their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, that you would place your spirit within them and move them to obey your commands and decrees. We pray that those who seem right now to be the greatest opponents to the gospel would become the greatest advocates for the gospel. We pray right now that those who are converting people to atheism would soon be converting people to Christianity. We pray right now for those great leaders of our culture who are leading the culture the wrong way, that you would change their heart and they lead our culture the right way. We pray for disciples in every corner of our societies around the globe that are people who nobody ever thought Jesus could save them. But would you go out of your way? Would you give them visions? Would you give them dreams? Would you give them miraculous signs, Lord? And we pray that you wouldn't give up on anyone, no matter how much they have menaced us or others. Show us what we could do to join with you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Would you stand with me?